So if you would turn to Romans 8, I'm going to read verses 31 to 34. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We pray that as the seed of your word is scattered, that it would fall on good soil, that the truth, the nourishment, the life-giving nature of your word would fall on our hearts and caused a harvest of righteousness to come forth. That in this message, that the blessing, the implications, the significance of the resurrection would be brought home to us in a fresh and new way, and that we would live in light of it. We pray this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. I was a public school student, and like all public school students, I knew that there was one place in every school that you never wanted to visit. That was the principal's office. And yet, on one unforgettable day in first grade, I found myself sitting outside the principal's office awaiting my sentencing trial. I won't go into the details, but due to my actions that day, the principal sentenced me to a phone call to my parents, which if you've met my parents, they're not here today, so I can say this. I think you can understand what I mean when I say that the phone call was only the beginning of my punishment. And it was an effective punishment because from that day in first grade until I graduated high school, I made sure that I never visited the principal's office again. That one visit to the principal's office left such an indelible mark on my little conscience that I was ever motivated from that day on to do whatever it took never to visit the principal again. We'll move on later in life. Like all new drivers who have just gotten their driver's license and are experiencing the the freedom of the open road for the first time, I knew that there was one sight you never wanted to see in your rear view mirror as a driver, and that was red and blue flashing lights. But on one unforgettable day, less than six months into my career as a licensed vehicle operator, I found myself parked on the side of a highway with red and blue flashing lights parked behind me. And I sat in my car awaiting my sentencing as the police officer walked up to my window. Now, thankfully, he didn't make me call my parents, but he did write me a $200 ticket for going 20 over the speed limit. Now, it was an effective punishment because from that day on until now, and I can say this with God as my witness, that I have never ended up parked behind a car with red and blue flashing lights. That one ticket, $200 for a 16-year-old, which is you know inflation, whatever, you, that's a lot of money for a 16-year-old, it left such an indelible mark on my conscience that I have maintained and been ever motivated to avoid such a meeting ever again. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I'm convinced that many of us functionally view God the Father as if he were like a school principal or a police officer sitting at a speed trap. The only time we visit with God is when we've sinned badly, broken his law in some egregious way, and we tell him how ashamed we are of what we've done, and we'll try our best never to do it again so we don't have to keep meeting like this. 
And in connection with that, we view our religious practice, our rituals, whatever they are, devotion, as a way of doing what we need to do so as to avoid the principal's office and the red and blue flashing lights of the police officer. We try to keep a clean record before God, not out of love for God, but out of a motivation in a sense to avoid God because we do not see him as a loving father, but only as a stern principal or a stern judge. Instead of living in and being motivated by gratitude for grace, by gratitude for the love that God has shown us, we constantly live under the threat of the dark cloud of guilt and condemnation. We have a nagging sense that we're one wrong step away from being called into the principal's office or pulled over by the police. And this distorted view of God and this distorted view of the Christian life, it robs us of everything that we're meant to live in light of. We're meant to live in light of joy and freedom and love and assurance, which our Heavenly Father offers us freely in the gospel of Christ. So today, we're going to look at one verse, Romans 8, 34. It is a glorious verse because it teaches us this. It teaches us that if you are in Christ, you can live in the freedom of forgiveness and of the Father's love because Christ is your crucified and risen Savior. If you are in Christ, you can live in the assurance of forgiveness, the freedom of the Father's love, because Christ is your crucified and risen Savior. Or let me put it in the form of a question. When guilt and condemnation are abounding and assurance is lacking, where do you look to restore the joy of your salvation? You look to the one who died for you and you look to the one who is risen for you. You look at the cross and you look at the empty tomb. That is the burial site of guilt and condemnation and the resurrection site of joy and freedom and hope. So we're in Romans 8 and we're kind of jumping and parachuting in the middle. So let me just give a little context. Romans 8 is the most densely packed chapter in all the Bible. This is the the Mount Everest of the Bible, the Mariana Trench of the Bible. It is the highest heights and the deepest depths of doctrine in the Christian scriptures. And it begins and ends with two of the most glorious truths in the Bible. It begins in Romans 8.1 with the truth that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it ends with, there is therefore now no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no separation. That book ends this chapter and everything in between is about defending, unpacking, and applying those two glorious truths. And the reason I chose for us to focus specifically on verse 34 is because this is kind of in seed form all that Paul unpacks in Romans 8. Paul unpacks the essence of why is there no condemnation and why is there no separation in Christ Jesus. Well, verse 34 opens with a question that kind of harkens back to verse 1. He, he opens with a rhetorical question. You look there with me. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Now, this term condemn is borrowed from the imagery of the courtroom. It's kind of from the legal realm. And it refers to that formal pronouncement that is delivered once a determination of guilt has been reached. So you think of the courtroom dramas in, in any show that you may have seen. The jury goes to deliberate, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a case, we're not sure what they're gonna do, and there's you know, 12 angry jurors or something like that, and they finally come to a conclusion. They re-enter the courtroom and everyone knows this is, this is the moment that the verdict is gonna be handed down. And so the, the foreman of the jury stands up, says, we the jury find the defendant guilty. And then you can see in the defendant the, the sinking feeling that he's now guilty. 
This is what Paul is asking us to envision. In the cosmic courtroom, who can stand up and justifiably point at us and say, we find the defendant, fill in your name, guilty of sin and deserving of the wages of sin, which is death. Now, before we get to Paul's answer of who can condemn us, we all have to admit that many different sources do at least attempt to condemn us, or we have a nagging sense that they do. Many voices often in our life rise in accusation against us, and they sound like condemnation. For some, it might be your past that rises up like an accusing voice condemning you. Your mind replays the past sins like a highlight reel, instant replay over and over again, never letting you forget what you did, and so you feel condemned. For others, their conscience always feels trouble. Their, their conscience is like that metal detector that is turned up so high it just finds everything. You say, I haven't done enough. I should be doing more. I'm doing all the wrong things. I, I'm trying the right things, but I'm not doing them the right way. And just constantly goes on and on, the, the nagging conscience. And let's not also forget the efforts of the evil one, Satan, who is rightly called slanderer, the accuser of the people of God. And returning to the earlier skewed imagery of God as kind of public school principal or speed trap police officer, there are many times when we sense that God stands eagerly ready to condemn us. Right? He is the judge of all the earth, after all. Christ was risen, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. So we picture him examining the record of our sins with gavel raised, ready to drop the hammer of justice upon us. So when Paul asks the question, who is to condemn? If you just stop there and subjectively answered it, you might answer by saying, well, it sure feels like a lot of voices want to condemn me. But what Paul is seeking to do in answering that question is he's seeking to reorient our subjective sense of condemnation by giving us a healthy dose of objective gospel realities that reorient our subjective sense of the answer to this question. Despite the condemnation we may sense in our heart from various sources, Paul's answer to his rhetorical question is that no one can. No one can condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. Every single accusation, every single charge against those in Christ is invalid, it is inadmissible, it is unjustified, whether it's from the past, the present, or the future. Because as Paul says in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, how can we know this? How can we live in the assurance of the Father's love for us? Well, Paul goes on to answer that. We can live in the assurance of the Father's love by fixing our eyes on the objective gospel realities that Paul lays out for us in the rest of verse 34. You see, what Paul is doing in answering this question is not just throwing out religious platitudes to make us feel better about ourselves. He's grounding his answer in historical, objectively accomplished gospel realities that we see in Christ. And this is where Christianity separates itself from every other kind of notion in our modern world. When, when someone feels the weight of guilt and condemnation, when they're weighed down by it, our world says your problem is you have low self-esteem and we need to puff you up and make you feel better about yourself. So they kind of inflate your ego. They make you feel better. And yet, Christianity says it's not about inflating your ego. It's not about looking at yourself, looking within and feeling better. It's about esteeming Christ, looking outward and upward to someone else who has done what you could not do for yourself. It is not about esteeming self, it's about esteeming Christ. That's where our hope is found. So the first gospel reality that Paul calls us to look to is our crucified Savior. So verse 31, 34, sorry, 
No one can condemn us. Why, Paul? Look what he says. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. So by directing our eyes to the cross of Christ, Paul is not merely directing our eyes to the fact of Christ's death. He wants us to know the meaning, the implications, the significance of Christ's death. What he's saying is the very sins that could rise and condemn you were canceled at the cross of Christ. All the penalty that sin could demand, all the punishment that they deserve, all the guilt that they've incurred have been canceled when Christ said, it is finished. That's what Paul is saying. And he unfolds this a little bit more elsewhere. Would you turn with me just briefly to Colossians, this letter in Colossians, just a couple letters over from Romans. And Paul gives this wonderful, rich illustration and imagery of what it means that the death of Christ has released us from the grip of condemnation and the grip of guilt. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He's unfolding the significance of the death of Christ. And he says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And as a result, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul's doing there is he's he's merging two imageries together, financial and legal imagery. Imagine if you were in financial debt, that you had credit card loans, just different loans that you were defunct on. The interest is mounting and rising and you're not paying it. Well, now you're in legal trouble. And who comes after you? Creditors come after you. The creditors are calling. Your phone is going off the hook. You don't want to answer your phone anymore because this mountain of debt now weighs so heavily that there's no way you can overcome this mountain of debt. That's the imagery that Paul's giving of our sin. It has financial implications because of debt, and because of that, it has legal implications. And we are drowning it. We are crushed beneath this mountain of debt. And yet, imagine, in the midst of all that, one day you go out to your mailbox, and you have three letters. Let's say you have just three different sources of debt. And you open each letter, and in it, it says, paid in full. And you open another one, and then it says, paid in full. And you open another one, paid in full. And from that day on, guess what happens? Your phone is silent. No more creditors calling because they now have no grounds with which to call you and condemn you. That's what Paul is saying has happened in the cross of Christ. All that record of debt by which the creditors had a right to come to you and demand payment from you and could pursue legal action against you. Paul says all of it paid in full, paid in full. He removed all of the possibility that a creditor could have to come and put a charge against you. So what Paul is saying is that in the cross of Christ, all the accusational ammunition that the evil one could use against you has been dealt with such that there is no bullets in the gun of condemnation anymore. It's just blanks. It's empty. He has nothing by which he can condemn you. And so the father in giving his son for us at the cross has forever overruled and silenced the voices that would condemn you. Now, we also see this in the political arena. It's very interesting. In the political arena, one of the common tactics used by one candidate against another, and this is where there's, there's bipartisan support in this matter, they try to dig up any past action or past information that will discredit their opponent. And so now there's this looming fear hanging over every candidacy and every political candidate. Is there something in their past that they've forgotten about or tried to cover up that's going to be brought up and then ruin their campaign? 
And so people will sit down and he said, you know, tell me everything. Let me know everything. Because one candidate is going to send a search party out for another candidate to dig up what they can to accuse them. Well, spiritually speaking, many have a similar fear regarding the status of their salvation, the assurance of their salvation. As if we're going to approach the judgment seat of God and we're going to come to find out that Satan's private investigative journalist has uncovered that one sin that we did not deal with properly, that we tried to hide. But what Paul is saying is that search for that sin, which our detractors would go on and make and our enemies would use to condemn us, is a fool's errand. Because as Horatio Spafford wrote in his hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious sight, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Or that other hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We need not fear the voice of accusation. Looking to the cross not only assures us of forgiveness, it assures us of the Father's overflowing, abundant love for us. How is the cross a sign of God's love for us? And this is an important question to ponder because we often view the cross very one-dimensionally as if the cross was merely a display of Christ's love for us because he willingly laid down his life for us. Sometimes we have this distorted sense that God is the angry father and Jesus is the compassionate son who has devised a plan to convince his angry father to grant us pardon, which he begrudgingly obliged to do. You know, you probably all had this situation or maybe you had it or maybe you know someone had where they, they're, they're dating someone who knows their parents won't approve of the person they're dating. So they're you know, really nice and they try to conjure up some, you know, some story to get their parents to like the person they're not. That's sometimes how we view the relationship between the father and the son when it comes to our forgiveness. This couldn't be further from the truth. The cross is not the cause of God's love. It is the expression of God's love to us. For God so loved the world that he begrudgingly gave his son. No, that he gave his son for us. The rescue operation which Christ was sent on was designed by the wisdom of the Father, was initiated by the love of the Father from before the foundation of the earth. Look at Romans 8.32 with me. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The basis of ongoing grace is past grace. It's the past grace of God giving his son so that we know in the future he'll continue to give us grace. Listen to this wonderful quote from Octavius Winslow. He asked this question, who ultimately delivered up Jesus to die? It was not Judas for money. It was not Pilate for fear. It was not the Jews for envy. It was the father for love. The father did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, for you. He delivered him up for you who are tempted to interpret all your afflictions as signals of wrath, all your sins as seals of condemnation, all your poverty as marks of neglect, and your seasons of darkness as tokens of desertion, and your doubts and fears as evidence of a false hope. For you, dear child of God, Jesus was delivered up for you by the Father. So in order to know the assurance of forgiveness and better apprehend the Father's love, we need to look to our crucified Savior. Well, now as we move, in verse 34, slowly but surely, the next phrase moves us from the events of Good Friday to the events of Easter Sunday. So Paul asks, who is to condemn? 
First answer, no one, because Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now notice carefully the wording he uses after that. More than that, who was raised. So number one reason why you're not condemned is because Christ Jesus is the one who died. Number two reason is because even more than that, Christ was raised. So no one can condemn you, believer, because Christ died for you. Even more importantly, Christ was raised from the dead. It's as if Paul is saying, when it comes to the solidity of our assurance, the events of Easter are even more important than the events of Good Friday. In what sense is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead even more essential for our assurance and forgiveness? Well, let me first say why it's not more essential. It's not more essential in the sense that the resurrection somehow makes up for a deficiency that was lacking in the death of Christ. That's not what Paul is saying. That would call into question, Jesus cry from the cross, it is finished. The son's work of redemption was like the father's work of creation. It was very good. Perfect in all that accomplished, lacking in nothing. Yet, where would our assurance of the perfect, sufficient, sin-canceling death of Christ be if Jesus had remained in the grave? Consider that. And it's a biblical question asked because Paul asked that very same question in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, he's writing to the Corinthians who are wondering if the resurrection had already, the general resurrection had already happened or if Christ hadn't been raised. And Paul answers that very grim hypothetical question for us by saying, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So what Paul is saying is, the resurrection of Christ is, in a sense, absolutely essential to validate what Christ accomplished in his death. That's why on the basis of these words, the great reformer John Knox called the resurrection of Christ the chief article of the Christian faith. It is the reality on which Christianity stands or falls. Paul says that the resurrection is even more essential for our assurance and our forgiveness because it is the divine affirmation of the perfection and sufficiency of the death of Christ. The resurrection, far from making up for a deficiency in the death of Christ, is the proof positive that the death of Christ was the once and for all sacrifice for sin. No more is needed. It is all done. It is all paid for. Imagine that you go to the mailbox one day and you open a letter which contains a massive, unexpected inheritance check from a relative you didn't even know you had. Right? You probably get those spam emails where the crown prince of some country far, far away, uh, his father died and he's now got this inheritance and he wants to share it with you. Well, imagine that really happens, but it comes in a letter. So you take that check and what do you do? You go to the bank and you deposit those funds, but the bank teller tells you that they'll need three days to verify the validity of the check. So you wait and you wait and you wait. And then three days later, the bank teller calls you back and says, the check is good and the funds are now in your account. In a similar manner, that's the relationship between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Christ, in his death, because of his perfect life, was writing a check at the cross for our sin and all of its debt, and the resurrection is the proof that the check cleared, that our account is now overflowing with the righteousness of Christ. The resurrection affirms for us that in Christ, there is sufficient funds not only to get us out of debt, but there is perfect righteousness that we get to swim in and live in and know the assurance of. The resurrection affirms the perfect sufficiency of the death of Christ. 
Also, Paul says that the resurrection is even more essential for our assurance because it confirms the victory of Christ over all the enemies that would condemn us. The resurrection is the confirming proof that Christ has crushed the head of Satan, that he has overturned the curse of sin, and that he has conquered death and the grave. Think of the resurrection and its victory confirmation like this. So kids, imagine that you're a citizen of a town that has the nice name called Condemnation. Okay, that's the town you live in. And not only do you live in a town with a terrible name, but you live in a town that is very dangerous because you're constantly under the threat of a evil three-headed dragon. And this dragon is named Accuser. And it's constantly accusing and terrorizing the people. And yet one day a great king visits from a far off country with his own son. And his own son happens to be a great warrior. And so all the townspeople tell the king about this menacing dragon accuser and decides to send his son, his only son, to slay the dragon. So the son gladly agrees. He mounts his horse and he rides off toward the caves where the dragon lives. Well, sometime later on a Friday, the townspeople receive news that the son of the great king has defeated the dragon, that he has killed accuser once and for all. Now, this is good news, but all you have is the word of someone. And you receive it with a little bit of apprehensiveness because the dragon has been such a tormenting foe that you cannot get the images and the voices out of your head from what he has done and said to the people. And so the citizens want final proof that he really is dead, that they really are in the freedom. So all the townspeople wait by the city gates and they wait and they wait. And finally, early on Sunday morning, just as the sun is rising, one of the city watchmen spots the son of the king, and he rings the bell and he announced the rest of the citizens that the son of the king is coming. And as he gets closer, as everyone's gathering to watch, you notice that he is dragging behind him three severed heads from the dragon. And there's a trail of blood behind him. And at that moment, the news of Friday's victory over the dragon is confirmed by the sight of the victorious son on Sunday. That is what Paul means when he says that the resurrection of Christ is of utmost importance for the assurance of our salvation. It affirms the perfection, the sufficiency of Christ's death. No more is needed. It's paid in full. And it confirms the victory of his death. His foes truly lie crushed beneath his feet. Death could not contain him. So where do we find our assurance? Where do we find our assurance that no one in all of the universe can lay a charge of condemnation against us that will stick by looking to Christ with the eyes of faith, by looking at the cross where the father who loved us gave his own son for us and did not spare him, and by looking to the empty tomb where we find the burial site of all of our guilt, all of our condemnation, all of our sin, and the one who would accuse us because it confirms the victory of Christ. It is so important that you notice that assurance is not found by looking inward. Assurance is not found by thinking just better thoughts of self. Assurance, trying to find assurance like looking inward is like me when I go to my fridge every day. I don't know how to cook. I don't do that. I look in the fridge and and no meals magically pop out, but it doesn't stop me from looking in the fridge over and over again every day. I'm hungry. I open the fridge. There's nothing there. (laughs) Looking inward for the hope and the basis and reality of, of assurance It's like looking at, you're not going to find one crumb of comfort inside. Quite the opposite. Assurance is found by looking outward and upward to Christ. 
not by looking to self, but by looking to the Savior. As a famous reformer, Martin Luther said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. When I look at Christ, I don't see how I can ever be lost. That's where the eyes of faith must fix their gaze on the one who was crucified and raised for us. Let's pray.